welcome to the Election Ride Home for Tuesday, January 7th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of election news. Today, lawyers urge action to fix the Federal Election Commission, Chafee joins the Libertarian presidential primary, another Republican announces his retirement from Congress, the impeachment update, Pompeo rules out a Senate run in Kansas, and Warren releases a new bankruptcy plan. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, a story on the Federal Election Commission, or FEC. The background is that the FEC enforces campaign finance laws, and back in August, a commissioner resigned. Now, normally, who cares? But in this case, that left the FEC without the ability to gain a quorum, meaning it cannot do stuff. Like, if there are matters requiring a vote, they cannot vote. There are not enough people there. This is a crisis when we are heading into an election. Reading from an article by Michelle Yehi Lee for the Washington Post, quote, A bipartisan group of campaign finance lawyers on Monday urged the White House and congressional leaders to work together and immediately to restore a voting quorum on the Federal Election Commission, which cannot monitor compliance with election laws even as presidential primaries begin in a month. Skipping one paragraph here. While routine administrative work continues, the agency cannot enforce the law, vote on investigations, provide guidance, or conduct audits, activities that are especially crucial and timely for a presidential election, which is projected to be the most expensive one to date. End quote. Okay, so quick review time. The FEC has a total of six commissioners in a normal world. You need four to have a quorum. That's one more than half and we currently have three. There is already one nominee from President Trump for the FEC sitting on the Senate's to-do list waiting for a confirmation vote. Democrats have said, let's just approve that nominee, and immediately the FEC would get back to work. But Republicans suggest that instead of doing that, why not appoint a brand new slate of all six and replace the three folks who are still there? And this gets into some partisan politics that are not super relevant to this election. Okay, but what is the scope of the problem relevant to this election? Well, reading again from the Post, quote, There were 35 matters involving foreign nationals under consideration as of December 1st, 2019, with seven cases awaiting a vote by a full quorum, according to an end-of-year report by FEC Chairwoman Ellen Weintraub, a Democrat and the agency's enforcement backlog is growing. Foreign nationals are barred under federal law from donating to U.S. campaigns. With less than a month until the first votes are cast in the 2020 elections, the lawyers who advise clients on election matters are sounding the alarms. The lack of a quorum has led to uncertainty over how campaigns and organizations and their methods of reporting donations or expenses may be affected by recent changes in the law, they said. End quote. So watch for movement here as we now have bipartisan agreement, outside the Senate anyway, that a non-functional FEC is a real problem. Next up, Lincoln Chafee has filed paperwork to run for president as a libertarian. Now, Chafee is somebody with a complex political history, so I will attempt to sum it up. He started as mayor of Warwick, Rhode Island in the 90s. He served as a senator for Rhode Island starting in 1999 when he was a Republican. 
He lost his re-election campaign in 2006, but he later ran for governor of Rhode Island as an independent, and he won. He served there, again, as an independent from 2011 through 2015. Part of the way through his governorship, he switched parties again to become a Democrat. Then he joined the Democratic presidential primary in 2015, but dropped out pretty early. In March of this year, he switched again to the Libertarian Party. And now he has filed to run for president in the Libertarian primary. Now, that primary is its own whole thing with about a dozen people running right now. Maybe we can deal with that down the line just a bit. Chafee's website is super minimal at the moment, but bears the slogan, quote, No more wars, no more reckless spending, end quote. So we will keep you posted if we hear more from Chafee. On Twitter this morning, he had not yet announced his presidential bid. Having said that, he wrote his first tweet since 2018, just last Friday, calling for an end to aggression in the Middle East. This might also be a good time to note that Chafee was the sole Republican senator to vote against authorizing war with Iraq back in 2002. So add one more anti-war candidate to the mix. Here's a quick item. Tennessee Congressman Phil Rowe will not run for re-election in 2020. He is a doctor, a veteran, and spent much of his congressional career working on matters relevant to veterans. In fact, he is currently the ranking member of the Committee on Veterans Affairs. He represents Tennessee's first district, and that is an extremely safe Republican seat. Just to give you one factoid about it, Tennessee's first district has been held by a Republican since 1881. So I can't really imagine any seat in the U.S. safer than that one. Anyway, this brings the total number of Republican congressional retirements to 27 compared to nine Democrats so far. The Election Ride Home is brought to you by Mack Weldon. They make comfortable, smart clothing using premium fabrics. And it's simple to shop for precisely what you want online. I am currently wearing two things I bought from Mack Weldon, and they work for everything I do around the house, at the gym, on the town, and even recording podcasts. Mack Weldon's clothes are made of premium fabrics, so they stand up to whatever you can throw at them. And they're also comfortable. This is clothing you will be comfortable with wherever you go. I can tell you from experience, this stuff is legit comfy. That is why I'm wearing it today at my job. Probably the most famous Mack Weldon item is the silver underwear. So here's the deal. It's made with fabric that is naturally antimicrobial. That means no odors. They want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code ELECTION. Once again, that's MacWeldon.com, promo code ELECTION, to get 20% off your first order of great new clothing. The Election Ride Home is brought to you by Plexiderm. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. This is not surgery. It's not Botox. It is a clear solution for your problem areas. And I know we all have a few of those. 
Plexiderm offers you smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. It goes on clear, so nobody knows you're using it. Again, that is a big difference if you've ever looked at surgical stuff for wrinkles and the areas around your eyes. That's where people look, and that's why you're better off with all-natural Plexiderm. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an additional $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit tryplexiderm.com today and use code VOICES at checkout. That's tryplexiderm.com, code VOICES. And now, the impeachment news in three minutes or less. First up, a correction to yesterday's segment. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton was not subpoenaed by the House, but I said yesterday that he was. There was talk of a subpoena, and there is actually now currently more talk of a subpoena, but it didn't actually materialize. Reading here from a story by Ed Kilgore in New York Magazine's Intelligencer. Quote, You may be wondering why Bolton suddenly decided to testify, after deferring to the courts to determine whether a House subpoena would persuade him to testify. It's unlikely because any Senate subpoena would actually be signed by the Senate trial's presiding officer, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, and no inferior federal judge would be likely to brush that aside. End quote. So, Kilgore was right that I was wondering precisely that, and the logic does seem consistent on Bolton's part, given the relative supremacy of the Supreme Court. And one more bit about the Bolton situation comes from an article by Nicholas Fandos and Michael Schmidt in the New York Times. This one starts with a quote by Chuck Schumer, by the way. Quote, Given that Mr. Bolton's lawyers have stated he has new, relevant information to share, if any Senate Republican opposes issuing subpoenas to the four witnesses and documents we have requested, they would make absolutely clear they are participating in a cover-up, the Democratic leader, Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, said in a speech on the Senate floor. But Mr. McConnell appeared unmoved by the development, and there was no immediate clamor from rank-and-file Republicans for him to change his stance. Instead, the loudest voices in the party on Monday were from a group of Republican senators who spent the day trumpeting a newly introduced resolution that would alter Senate rules to allow the chamber to dismiss the House case without a trial. End quote. In other impeachment news, McConnell may be able to move ahead with starting a trial regardless of all this actual decision-making. Reading from a story by Burgess Everett and Marianne Levine for Politico, quote, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is on the verge of having sufficient backing in his 53-member caucus to pass a blueprint for the trial that leaves the question of seeking witnesses and documents until after opening arguments are made, according to multiple senators. That framework would mirror the contours of President Bill Clinton's trial and ignore Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer's demands for witnesses and new evidence. No final decision has been made, but in a brief interview, McConnell said he would address the possibility of spurning Democrats on Tuesday afternoon. End quote. Next up, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo reportedly will not run for Senate in Kansas this year. As you may know, Pompeo is pretty busy right now. He briefed press this morning on a variety of situations around the world, most notably Iran. Pompeo met with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell yesterday after exploring a Senate run for a while now, and reportedly he told McConnell he wasn't going to run. 
Okay, so why does this matter? Well, that seat is currently held by Pat Roberts, who announced way back in January that he would not run again. Roberts is currently 83 years old, and if he ran again, that would be for his sixth six-year term, so, you know, logical time to step aside. The Roberts retirement has created a closely watched primary race in Kansas for that seat. Republicans have held that seat since 1932, so it's still a bit of a long shot for Democrats to flip it, but it's not impossible. After all, Roberts won just over 53% of the vote in his last election. In that election, Roberts faced Laura Kelly, who is now governor of Kansas. And how did she get there? Well, by beating Republican Chris Kobach in 2018. In other words, a Democrat flipped the governorship in the previous election cycle. There's an active primary in both parties for that Senate race. But with Pompeo apparently out of the running, a lot of attention turns to Kobach. After losing that run for governor in the midterms, he's seen as a potentially damaged candidate, although he has close ties to President Trump. Kobach faces several well-funded Republican opponents, so again, this is a race to watch even in the primary. And one more tidbit here, technically Pompeo could still file to run. The deadline to enter the race isn't until June this year, so if this Iran stuff blows over and he leaves his current job, I guess, you know, maybe Pompeo could reassess his options. Last up today, Senator Elizabeth Warren has released a new policy plan. It's been a while since we dug into policy stuff on this show, so I felt like ending today on a wonky note. The new plan is titled Fixing Our Bankruptcy System to Give People a Second Chance. In the intro, Warren describes her history studying why people declared bankruptcy. And bankruptcy is the signature issue of her legal career and her early political career. Quote, Our research ended up showing that most of these families weren't reckless or irresponsible. They were just getting squeezed by an economy that forced them to take on more debt and more risk to cling to their place in America's middle class. And that meant one bad break could send them tumbling over the edge. The data showed that nearly 90% of these families were declaring bankruptcy for one of three reasons. A job loss, a medical problem, or a family breakup. End quote. Warren then recounts the political battles of the 90s and early 2000s around bankruptcy. I can mostly summarize those by saying that President Clinton vetoed a bill near the end of his presidency that would have made it harder for people to declare bankruptcy. But a revised version of that bill came back in 2005 and passed with support from a variety of people, including then-Senator Joe Biden. Now, Warren doesn't call Biden out by name in her proposal, but, you know, it's a historical fact that old people like me remember well. Anyway, reading again about the effect of that law. Quote, It was terrible for families in need. After the bill passed, bankruptcy filings went down permanently by 50%, and the number of insolvent people went up permanently by 25%. By making it harder for people to discharge their debts and keep current on their house payments, the 2005 bill made the 2008 financial crisis significantly worse. Experts found that the bill caused about 800,000 additional mortgage defaults and 250,000 additional foreclosures, end quote. Now, we're still in history mode. We will get to the policy in just a moment. This led Warren to propose the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in 2007. She was, at the time, a law professor at Harvard. 
I have a link in the show notes not just to this new policy, but also her original article proposing that agency. A few years later, President Obama created the CFPB and appointed Warren to help get it going. Warren became a senator soon after that. She was sworn in as a senator by then-Vice President Joe Biden, who joked, quote, you gave me hell, end quote, referring to that bankruptcy debate. And yes, Warren and her husband did laugh at that joke. Okay, so what would this new policy do? Well, for one thing, it would allow student loan debt to be discharged as part of bankruptcy. That is currently a form of debt you usually cannot escape even if you do file, as a result of that 2015 bill. Warren would also change various technical aspects of the filing process to make it easier to do. This means reducing paperwork and removing fees for people living below the poverty line. She would also allow people to restructure their home mortgages during bankruptcy and protect their cars, two things that are vital to regaining your financial footing after such an event. And she would eliminate some loopholes that allow wealthy people in certain states to protect some of their assets even during bankruptcy. As always, I ask, what would this cost and how would Warren pay for it? And for once, there is not a section in this proposal dealing with that issue. But frankly, my read of this proposal is that it would not cost the government anything, aside from possible federal student loan debt defaults, which Warren does not calculate in her proposal. So it's unclear to me, anyway, whether the government actually faces substantial costs by changing bankruptcy rules. Warren does spend a good chunk of the proposal talking about the current societal costs that would be remedied by changing the bankruptcy process. However, guess who definitely does face costs if this proposal were to be enacted? Well, whoever holds the debt that would be discharged via bankruptcy. In other words, mostly banks. The final aspect of this policy worth getting into is that it is a super clear way to distinguish Warren from Biden. It is not specifically an attack against Biden, but it does invite voters to look back at the records of both candidates. And I would expect this might come up somehow in next week's debate in between a thousand questions about foreign policy. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, as I mentioned yesterday, I am stepping away from this show and we are transitioning to a new host. That is Glenn Fleischman, a veteran reporter and podcaster based in Seattle. Here's how the schedule is going to work. Glenn will be with you tomorrow through Friday this week. Next week, I'm back on Monday. Then Glenn takes Tuesday and Wednesday. Remember, those are debate days. And I am back on Thursday and Friday next week. That makes Friday the 17th my final show. As always, thanks for listening, and Glenn will talk to you all tomorrow. 